Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. And today's event occurred in the year 1883. But what else happened that year? Well, on January the 4th, Life magazine is founded in Los Angeles in the United States. On May the 23rd, Robert Louis Stevenson's children's pirate adventure novel, Treasure Island, is first published in book format in London. On May the 30th, a rumour is going around that the Brooklyn Bridge is going to collapse and that, in itself, causes a stampede, which crushes 12 people. On November 3rd, in the American Old West, Charles E. Bowles, also known as Black Bart, an American outlaw noted for his poetic messages he left behind after two of his robberies, made his last stagecoach robbery, but he left behind a handkerchief with a laundry mark that eventually leads to his capture. And also that year, the last scene in what has now become known as the Kingswood Tragedy was enacted in Gloucester Jail on the 16th of March, 1893, when Albert Henry Manning, aged 37, was, in accordance with the sentence pronounced by Mr Justice Grantham at the previous assizes, taken to the place of execution and there hanged by the neck until he was dead. This was for the murder of Mrs Jane Elizabeth Flew that happened on the 28th of September, 1892 in Sandwell Road, Kingswood, Bristol. Word of the Week Brace yourselves, guys, for this week I give you... Glocal, which means... Adapting international products to local cultures and tastes. Our perpetrator today, Albert Manning, was born in Warmley in 1855 and lived with his father, William, and mother until he was 17 years old when he left them and went to lodge with Mr and Mrs Flew. Jane Flew, whose maiden name was Peach, and Job Flew, a minor, were married at Holy Trinity Church in Kingswood, 
on the 25th of June, 1871, and the couple went to live at nearby Bridge Eight, and from there, they went to Holbrook. At both places, Albert was their lodger. After about three or four years, arguments started between the married couple over the attentions that Manning was paying to Jane. Manning and Jane eventually moved to a place at Queen Street in St George, and Job started living at North Common. Soon after, though, Job left his home and went away. It was thought that he had gone to America, never to be heard of again. Manning remained with Jane and lived with her as her husband till a few weeks before the murder, with one short and strange interval when he left Jane and ended up in Wales. On the 19th of May in 1879, during that interval, Albert married a woman named Mary Fry, with whom he lived in Pontypool. He eventually left her and returned to Jane in Bristol, and they went to live at Queen Street in St George, before eventually returning to Holbrook. Now, Jane Flew was said to have been a hard-working and industrious woman. At some point, she went to live at a greengrocer's shop in Kingswood. She had four children with Job, two daughters, aged 20 and 18, and two sons, aged 15 and 40. In the news today, a man has ended up in hospital in Southmead, Bristol, after telling his girlfriend that she was drawing her eyebrows too high. He said that apparently she looked surprised. And now, let's continue with our story today. In the year 1890, disagreement started between Manning and Jane. All because of Manning's jealousy of a man named Brian. From time to time, Manning threatened Jane, and on one occasion, tried to throw her over the banisters of the house in which they lived when he came home one night. About ten weeks before the tragedy... One of these outbursts of jealousy against the woman and Brian occurred at the house in Soundwell Road, where Manning and Jane were living. Mr George William Peach, who was a dairyman living at 15 Pool Street, Kingsdown, as well as Jane's brother, arrived on the scene, and there was a disturbance about Brian, as well as about dresses belonging to Jane and one of her daughters, which they claimed Manning had torn to shreds. Manning was described as extremely agitated and Jane complained to Peach that she feared for her life. Peach advised Manning to be quiet and take it easy, try to calm down, but in the end he had to call for the police and Sergeant Watkins promptly went to the house and did his best to pacify the parties. Sergeant Watkins was told by Jane that she wanted Manning thrown out of the house. He asked Manning what he had to say for himself. And the reply was... She don't want me now, she's got her black lamb. And Jane interrupted and said... The man's not right and I'm afraid to stop with him. Jane added that her brother was coming back the next day and Manning would have to be gone by then, as he was only the lodger. Manning asked... Have I not helped to bring up the children? Jane sneered a reply, 
saying, You've hardly supported yourself. The argument continued until it was decided that it was too late that night for Manning to leave the house. But he would do so the following morning. And this he did, going to stay at his mother's house at Warmley Hill, which was only a short distance away. Shortly after, he started work, helping to construct a number of houses which were being built by Mr Bullock of Philwood House. The construction was near Jane's shop, and the result was that he visited her almost daily until the murder. Since Manning managed to get a job so very close to Jane's shop, he would very often go in and violently threaten her, and fearing that some harm may befall her, she complained to the police of his conduct, and Manning was cautioned. On Wednesday, September the 21st, Sergeant Shaw of the Kingswood Police saw Manning in Jane's shop. He went inside and advised him to stop annoying her. Manning said he would, adding, I wouldn't harm a hair on her head. He then left the premises, promising to behave in the future. On the following Saturday, though, he set up a stand in front of the shop with some vegetables, which he had grown in his own garden, and tried to sell them, in effect, competing with Jane for customers. That was the last time that it can be confirmed that he harassed Jane Flew. Over time, Manning had built up a bitter resentment towards Brian, believing him to be the man whom Jane had replaced him with. He even asked a work colleague called Eddie that if he saw Brian to let him know. On the morning of the day of the murder, the 28th of September, Manning took a brick in his hand and said, I won't mind the weight of a brick of gold if George Brian would come along. Fortunately, however, for Brian, Manning didn't see him that day. But that statement alone was regarded as proof that Manning was bent on murder and that he was aware beforehand that the consequences of his act would be fatal to himself as well as his victim. After he made his violent threats towards Brian, he asked Eddie, as he couldn't write himself, if he could dictate his will to him. The will bequeathed all his meagre belongings to his aged mother. During the day of the murder, Manning was seen to have a small corn bag with him, containing something that he was very, very careful with. There was every reason at the time to believe that this bag contained the revolver with which Jane Flew was killed, as he was extremely anxious about it and took it with him everywhere. And now I think it's time to get some fresh air. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the Big Stroll. Today's adventure sees us in Great Bedwin, 
where a Roman road between Sirencester and Winchester crosses the parish, with Crofton on its route. Castle Copse, south of Great Bedouin Village, is the site of a Roman villa, and the Church of England Parish Church of St Mary the Virgin has 12th century origins. Beneath the church are substantial remains of a Saxon church which began in 905 AD. In the chancel is a memorial to Sir John Seymour, who was the father of King Henry VIII's wife, Jane Seymour. And if you want to go a bit further afield, Avebury Stone Circle, Silbury Hill and the West Kennet Longbarrow are all a short drive from Bedwin. As you can imagine, keeping the Kennet and Avon Canal looking as lovely and gorgeous as it is takes a lot of work, and it's all done by volunteers. And we were lucky enough to speak to Sally from the Canal and River Trust. We're um, volunteers with the Canal and River Trust on the um, eastern end of the Kennet and Avon Canal, and one of our roles is to update the notice boards along the canal, which we've just done here at Wooden Rivers. So we actually operate from County Lock in Reading and my husband and myself do down as far as Devizes and then there's another volunteer will actually do the rest of the route of the canal. So And what else do you do? Other things, um, well, we do lock keeping occasionally. We're involved with um, vegetation management over the winter months. Obviously we can't do it at the moment due to birds nesting and so forth, not disturbing them. Um, other volunteers do things like um, maintenance on the locks regularly. Um, I actually work as an explorer for the um, CRT as well, which means that I will um, work with groups of children. So it might be brownies, beavers and things like that, or actually with school groups. And we'd be talking about water safety. So we would regularly do water safety sessions, which we've been doing through Zoom at the moment. Um, we also would normally have waterside visits. So places like um, Devizes or Newbury. Join us next week as we take our stroll through the village of Kintbury, which has not one, but two amateur dramatic societies and also hosts the... Ray Boxshaw Orienteering Fun Day. Now, as you may be aware, we're doing this massive walk to raise money for Suicide Prevention Bristol in memory of a friend and listener, Sarah. And if you want to make a donation, head on over to justgiving.com and look for Backtracker and you'll find us. On the 28th of September, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, Manning left work, and taking the gun with him, he went in the direction of Jane Flew's shop on Samwell Road. He entered, and according to his own version, which he gave the police, he asked Jane if she would start up their relationship again. But she declined, and added that if he hadn't gone away and married someone else, she would have had him back. Manning implored and begged her to come back to him. She refused. And when he tried to enter the kitchen, Jane rushed at him, demanding that he get out of her house, at which Manning said he would never move. So Jane shouted, 
That's when Manning brought out the gun and fired at Jane, the bullet entering her left breast and passing right through her body, leaving a mark on the back. She was 39 years old. Mr Walter Rowe of High Street, Kingswood, happened to be passing the shop at the time of the murder when he heard the shot. On looking into the house, he saw that a small curtain between the shop and the back living room was on fire. Albert Manning was standing by the door, but turned around and recognised Mr Rowe, and then ran into the back room. While Mr Rowe was there, Jane ran into the shop towards him, wounded and bleeding, and then she fell at his feet. Rowe immediately ran for the police, and when he returned, he found the woman lying dead in the back room, where she had been moved. The premises were searched by the police, and bullet marks were found in the backyard behind the living room, and a small bullet hole was discovered in the window looking into the yard. The police found Manning upstairs, hiding behind a pram and some bedclothes, and a piece of board, pretending to be asleep. When PC Kent woke him up, a violent struggle took place. Manning was five foot seven in height, and so strong that he was able to struggle violently for several minutes. And it was not until he slipped and fell that he was overpowered, handcuffed, and transported to the police station at Lawford Skate. The police continued their search of the premises and found concealed in the chimney behind the cash register a small revolver, three barrels of which had been recently discharged. Two were still loaded. They also found a purse containing a few coins and some cartridges, the latter fitting the revolver. Manning was afterwards searched and the police found cartridges the same as those found in the purse. So far, the chain of evidence was complete but it was the prisoner himself who sealed his own fate. Even though Manning was cautioned over and over again, he still made a clear and distinct statement in Lawford Skate Police Court. I shall tell you the truth. It's all for another man that this occurred. I have caught them several times together, and I warned him, if he did not stay away, there would be a row between him and me. He kept coming there, laughing and making fun of me. He took her to a place called Compton in a cart, unknown to me. When I went down there about a week or two afterwards, a man told of it. When I got home, I told the missus of what I had heard, and she said, I don't trouble. I shall ride with who I like. Several weeks after that, I took the pony to the blacksmith's and passed this man on the way. When I returned, I found him in the kitchen with the missus. We had a row and he went away and afterwards sent me a lawyer's letter demanding an apology. He afterwards saw the missus and daughters and wanted them to get their mother to kick up a row with me. This man managed to get the missus, the children and the policeman against me and turned me out of doors. I went one day last week to the shop and called for a bottle of soda water but before I could get it, the sergeant came in and the missus told the sergeant she would not have me there. I left the shop and talked to the sergeant, who advised me not to be there. I have passed by the shop every day since as I work close by, and the daughter and the man have been laughing at me ever since, and also the two women who live near. Today I went in and asked her if she would come and make it up again. At the same time, I put a ginger beer bottle on the counter, 
which I had sent a little boy for in the morning. And she said, No, I won't. You know what I told you. You keep out of the house. Or if you don't, I will have you taken up. She then told me to get out. I said, What do you say that for, missus? Make it up. She said, No, I will not. I went to go into the kitchen when she rushed at me to push me out. I told her that I would never shift. And she hollered, Murder! I took the pistol from my pocket, which I bought about six weeks ago, and said that if I ever caught the man I complained of in there along with her anymore, I will make it a hot shop of work for him. When she hollered murder, I fired through the window and the door and she ran out of the kitchen into the shop. I have begged her like a child begging for bread. I offered her all the money and the garden stuff to make it up. Having been taken before the magistrate and committed for trial on the capital charge, Manning was transported to Gloucester Jail on October 3rd. After the prisoner had passed through the reception cells, he came into Warden Wheeler's charge and he was drilled the same as every prisoner who entered the jail. The medical officer passed him as fit and he was placed in an ordinary cell. Wheeler then gave him instructions on how to keep his cell in order, all of which he seemed to understand perfectly well. He remained in that cell until the 9th of November and during that time he was visited three times by his mother, once by Mr Fussell, the boot and shoe manufacturer of Kingswood, and once by two other men. His mother, on her first visit, told him she was sorry to see him in this position, and he made a moan and said, This is what that fellow has brought me to. He wished his mother to remember him to the dear children, and said that was the only thing that seemed to prey on his mind. He did mention dear Jane, but did not say who he meant by that fellow. He kept on saying that his dear Jane troubled him a lot, and that if it had not been for this fellow, he would have been happy and comfortable with her now. When his mother visited him the second time, the conversation was about the same. He seemed to be excited and put up his hands. His mother mentioned the man's name on this occasion and told her son that he had no peace and was hated by the people in that part of the country and that if he did not get punished in this world, the Lord would punish him in the next. On the same occasion, Manning said, My Jane was with my cell last night. She came and had tea with me. When Mr Fussell visited him, he stayed with him two or three minutes. And when Mr Fussell had gone, Wheeler went to the prisoner's cell and said, Who's that gentleman who came to see you just now? Boot and shoe manufacturer of Kingswood. He's a good man, he is. He's been very good to me and is very good to the poor down there. He employs a lot of men. The next time, though, when Manning was visited by his mother, he seemed to be completely dazed. All he was talking about was his dear Jane, having been in his cell that night and having had supper with him. He seemed very excited and was twirling his hands. He kept his cell in order and those in charge of him had no trouble with him. But still, on November the 9th, he was moved from that cell by order of the medical officer and placed in an association cell in company with two untried prisoners. And from then on, he appeared to know that he was being watched. And whenever anyone went to his cell, he seemed to be 
what is commonly known as putting it on. Warden Wheeler saw nothing, whatever, to make him believe that Manning was anything but of sound mind. He should have been tried at the autumn assizes, but there were some doubts as to his ability to plead. The case was allowed to stand over until the winter assizes, which were held in February 1893. Since the previous assizes, he had been quite calm and no trouble to anyone. He would not speak, but expressed himself by signs. Whatever he was told to do, he did, and he ate ravenously. In fact, that was the only thing which seemed to trouble him. When, however, anyone was watching him, he would start rolling around on the ground and groaning. He always appeared to walk with his head down, but there was an extra roll put on when the doctor was looking at him. He had a habit of hunching his shoulders and at times would walk backwards and forwards in his cell, looking up occasionally towards the observation hole in the wall. Major Knox, the governor of the jail, considered that from the time Manning was received into the association's cell, his demeanour was different. He appeared dazed, but his actions were not such to cause the governor to come to the conclusion that his mind was weak. An application was made that the prisoner should be allowed to withdraw some money which he had in the post office savings bank, but Major Knox did not feel justified in witnessing his mark as consenting, because he did not think at the time Manning quite understood what he was doing. An ex-postman named William Jones, who was an attendant in a lunatic asylum and was confined in the same cell with Manning, confirmed that his first evening there Manning was talkative and spoke about his mother in Bristol. He said he had been wishing for somebody to read to him and pray for him. On that occasion, no warder was present, and when one visited him, his manner became quite different, and he would not speak at all. The medical superintendent of the Gloucester County Lunatic Asylum saw Manning the first week in November, and he visited him constantly until the autumn assizes. When asked what his opinion was to the prisoner's state of mind, he said that he was in considerable doubt about the whole matter. He said that only that morning he had watched Manning through the hole in the wall and then later examined him in Dr Oscar Clarke's private room when they both noticed a marked difference in his appearance and behaviour. When they saw him in the cell, he was walking normally and quite briskly but when he was brought into the other room with the doctors, he was all doubled up with his hands churning nervously at his coat, and all in all, his whole appearance seemed to be more demented than when the medical men looked at him through the hole in the wall. When Albert Manning's case did come to trial, Mr Justice Grantham was the judge on that occasion, and Manning was hoping the plea of insanity would save him from the hands of the executioner. A mass of evidence was called to show that the blood coursing through his veins was tainted with insanity, which found its vent on the day of the murder. But the plea was to no avail. Manning was found guilty of the full crime, and the jury added that they found he knew what he was doing at the time. Throughout the trial, Manning was acting odd, twitching, shuffling his shoulders and looking at the ground. But once he was told he was going to be executed, he stood tall and acted perfectly normally. 
This would be the first hanging at Gloucester Jail in 12 years. Jane Flew was buried in the churchyard of the Holy Trinity Church in Kingswood, where she married Job. From the house to the burial ground, the route was thronged with people, estimated at around 2,000. Police were stationed at the deceased house and in the churchyard, as well as along the route, but all behaved admirably. Many of the blinds were drawn along Soundwell Road and the large number of beautiful wreaths that covered the coffin was even more proof of the feelings locally over this tragic death. Back in the day facts. On the 8th of August in 1870, the first challenge for the America's Cup took place in Lower New York Bay. The 9th of August 1963 saw the first transmission of the pop record programme Ready Steady Go, which promised that the weekend starts here. And on that very same day in 1963, Whitney Houston was born in Newark, New Jersey. The 10th of August in 1842, the Mines Act came in force in the UK, releasing all women and girls, as well as boys under 10, from underground employment. On the 11th of August 1909, the SOS distress signal was used for the first time. And on the 12th of August, 1981, IBM's first personal computer was released. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. And I have to admit that I managed to get so much research material on this little-known crime that I will be releasing a bonus episode covering the execution of Albert Manning from the perspective of one of the few people allowed to witness it. So, look out for that one. Now, each episode of this podcast is brought to life by the vocal talents of some very, very special people. And this episode featured Molly Jeffries and Carrie Ball from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Henry Arnold and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio and Tony Allen. These talented folk make me look good. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small... You can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK, or you can email me direct at info at backtracker 
www.ghostsandmysteries.co.uk So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.